Kreb could make almost no abstractions. He could count only with great effort to just beyond twenty. He could make no quantum leaps, no intuitive strokes of genius. His mind, he knew, was more powerful than hers by far, more intelligent perhaps. But his genius was of a different nature. He could identify with his beginnings and hers. He could remember more and better than any of his own ancient plan. He could even force her to remember. But in her, he sensed the youth, the vitality of a newer form. She had diverged again, and he had not. Jean M. Owl. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I'd like to thank everyone for joining me uh, for this special bonus episode um, for the week of the 4th of July, uh, with me preparing to go out of town and just work being crazy. Um, I haven't had time to really script out too much of my regular episode uh, so I figured I'd do this little bonus episode I've been kind of poking around, just working on in my spare time. Um, so yeah, this is, as you could guess from the quote, uh, again, uh, this is a kind of a review and talk about uh, the book by Gene M. Owl, uh, Clan of the Cave Bear. Um, and this is, uh, this is a pretty interesting title. Uh, it is the first book in the Children, Earth's Children series, excuse me, uh, Clan of the Cave Bear, again, by Gene M. Owl. Uh, this is the second time I've read this book. The first was a few years ago after I had um, heard about it uh, in, like, a couple of kind of ancient, fictitious, historical reading lists. Um, and when I found a copy during a sale um, that my county library had, uh, they, they have these sales um, every quarter or so to kind of remove excess or outdated copies of books. Um, and I reread it, you know, last month kind of in preparation for this episode. And again, I've done some research uh, on the author and just kind of things that she talks about uh, in the book. Um, I believe there are seven books in total as of now. Uh, a new one released a few years ago, I believe. Um but uh, this is just going to be talking about the first book. Uh, but let's start off with a brief talk about the author, uh, Jean Marie uh, Untinen. Excuse me, was born in Chicago, Illinois, in 1936 to her Finnish immigrant parents. Uh, and I liked that fact that in Finland she used her maiden name hyphenated with her married name, Untinen Owl. Uh, it's a nice acknowledgement of her family history and uh, good marketing. Um, now, uh, she was the second of five children. Uh, she married her husband, Ray Owl, after they had graduated high school. Uh, she was 18 at the time, and the couple quickly had five children of their own. And Owl worked a number of positions at the American technology firm Tektronics, uh, which is kind of like, a, it, was a, it still technically exists. It's part of a larger umbrella of uh, companies now, but it was really kind of in the space of creating um, early computer parts and like technical type uh, pieces for larger machinery. Um, and while working there, she began college at the age of 28 at the University of Portland. And she was working full time during this period uh, as well. So, um, you know, she she was doing a lot 
but eventually, uh, she finished her, um, uh, I believe she got an MBA, uh, from, uh, University of Portland. So, um, she wasn't trained as a historian or, uh, an anthropologist or archaeologist or anything like that. However, she did, um, you know, eventually kind of, you know, come to enjoy the field. And the, um, the book was written, uh, in 1980. So she, she did not start this series until later in her life. And I believe she was 44, uh, if I remember correctly, when the first book was published. Uh, her children, of course, because she had her family so young, they had just kind of all started to move out for college, and she was, you know, she didn't really have to work. I think her husband and her together had, you know, made good money, and eventually, um, you know, uh, she didn't have to work, and she was kind of, you know, bored with the technical aspect uh, at Tektronics, and she served in a number of positions there. I think she started as a clerk. She became a technical writer for a number of years, and then moved on. You know, up until she became a manager in the mid seventies. Um, and uh, yeah, so um, once her children were out, she uh, kind of got the, uh, I guess, the idea for a story. Um, set during the Ice Age. And this is set uh, around some somewhere between about 30,000 years ago to about 25,000 ago. Uh, 25,000 uh, years ago. Um, no, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, 30,000 to 25,000 BCE is when she sets it. At least that's generally where she imagined it to take place. So it's right around the time that um, the Neanderthals are interacting with um, the Cro-Magnon uh, humans beginning to move into um, uh, Europe. And uh, I haven't really used the term Cro-Magnon much. It's, it's still used, uh, but it is slightly outdated. Um, but Cro-Magnons were kind of like the term for the early modern humans uh, moving into Europe. They're the, the first Homo sapiens uh, becoming European, I guess, for lack of a better term. Um, and the clan, uh, the eponymous clan of the cave bear, are a group of Neanderthals. Um, and Owl did a very uh, thorough uh, research on this uh, with at least at the time very cutting edge research and uh, kind of um, you know she she read a lot she did a lot of um, outside reading she took survival classes uh, to kind of make uh, learn how to make things like um, uh, lean-tos, uh, construct ice caves. Uh, she learned how to create fire using the most primitive methods, uh, tanning leather. She practiced napping stone uh, with a couple of um, experts who had uh, studied with the Aboriginal peoples. Uh, I think the name was uh, John Riggs, I believe. It may have been Jim. I can't remember off the top of my head. I didn't uh, take that down in my notes here. However, um, 
yeah, so she also did a lot of uh, reading with some, um, or I'm sorry, a lot of travel kind of following along in the places she read about in terms of um, old Europe. Uh, she, uh, she of course, did a lot of study of Maria Gambutas, who, of course, is a very famous archaeologist, one of the, you know, one of the, you know, big icons of the field for her generation. Uh, and she was very uh, influential in a lot of research. Uh, and I believe, you know, a lot of archaeologists and, you know, anthropologists specializing in that period with those people have a lot of respect for her work um, because she did do so much research. And she did, they felt like, capture a lot of uh, truth uh, in her writing, or at least, um, if not necessarily 100% truth, then definitely certain aspects that were very hard to um, get across in, you know, your drier, more technical, um, uh, I guess, analysis and studies and writing about these people. Uh, and the book follows... Uh, a couple of characters, but the two primary characters are Ayla and Kreb. Um, now, Kreb is a um, Neanderthal. He is uh, physically deformed. He has one arm. His One of his eyes is very weak. Uh, and actually, I believe, and I can't... I've heard it in a couple of places, but I didn't see it specifically mentioned by Jean or... Um, you know, any of the people interviewing her, but, uh, Kreb is actually based on a skeleton of a Neanderthal male found in Shanadar Cave, which is now located in modern day, uh, Iran, I believe. Uh, and it had a number of, uh, Neanderthal remains, and then, of course, later, Homo sapiens moved in. Um, I think there are some dating right to the end of the, um, Younger Dryas, or right, excuse me, right in the middle of the Younger Dryas period, uh, where they found around 40 individuals uh, that they believe were uh, either Naltufian or related to the Naltufian. Uh, but this individual also had a, um, a, um, a, a single arm. Um, so, um, she she definitely based this on like a real individual or the character of Crab on a real individual at least physically speaking. Um, but the actual place that this uh, novel is or the location that this novel is um, kind of representing is actually the ancient Crimean Peninsula, um, and this is again during the kind of the one of the high points of the last ice age, uh, but before the Younger Dryas. So it was the last glacial maximum, I believe. Um, although I don't, I didn't write that down a hundred percent. Uh, but it, it's during the last ice age. I, it may have been before the last maximum before the Younger Dryas. Um, I'd have to go back through my notes on that one. I should have, I should have looked that up earlier, but Regardless, the other character that this follows, Ayla, is again a young uh, Homo sapien woman. Uh, in fact, when the novel starts, she is just uh, around five years of age. Uh, 
Uh, there is an earthquake that kills Ayla's mother and family, and Ayla is kind of lucky to have survived, and she's alone in the woods, and she's attacked by a cave lion who marks, who scars her, uh, but she she's found by the clan of the cave bear as they are migrating from their cave, which was also affected by that earthquake. They're having to leave their old cave because of the seismic activity. And along the way, they find the girl. And the Neanderthals uh, in this are very wary of uh, Homo sapiens. Uh, they are referred to in the book as the others. Uh, whenever the Neanderthals are uh, talking about uh, Ayla's people, they're always referred to as the others. Um, and the leader of the uh, clan of the cave bear is Kreb's brother, uh, um, uh, Brun, excuse me, uh, Brun has a son named Broad, who's, uh, as you can tell, it can sometimes get a little confusing if you're not, uh, uh, paying the best of attention to the book. Um, and that's one of the things I like about the, um, the clan names. They're all very short, one or two syllable names. Uh, but Kreb is the younger brother, the deformed brother of Brun, uh, but because of his uniqueness and uh, his mother's kind of uh, sacrifice, who was the clan medicine woman, um, she, uh, she was able to kind of get them to spare Kreb from the normal type of uh, exposure that one might expect to see from you know uh, hunter-gatherer groups. Um, and you can tell, you know, it's very easy to see why Kreb takes pity on her. Uh, the clan considers Ayla ugly. Uh, she is very much not like them. And, you know, Kreb himself is not particularly good looking at least by neanderthal standards so he he definitely feels a sense of kinship in some way with this girl and he he is very much um like all the the people in this book they are very much ruled by their superstitions um but one of the good things that owl does uh these people have their traditions and their superstitions but they all have a kind of way of talking themselves out of the superstitions uh, if they really want to. They very much, um, you know, they, they find reasons around certain things, or at least the main character, Kreb, does. Uh, but he's not doing this because he's necessarily selfish. He might be doing that subconsciously. I think that could be argued uh, on a deeper read. But he is very much cognizant of his role as his clan's Moog Ur, which is a shop, which is their their word for shaman, Moog Ur. Um, so he he is very much reflective. He's a very introspective character. He's always thinking, um, and he, you know, he uses his kind of insights about, um, I guess, the nature of Ayla compared to himself and his people. And he he kind of 
understands that she, despite being a bit of an outcast like him, uh, and them sharing certain more superficial traits, um, he understands that Ayla is different from him in ways that he can't explain and that the clan can't explain. And because of these differences, he's able to easily rationalize why she should be treated differently. And that may sound kind of rough, but no, he, he treats her differently so to, to help her survive. Krev very much cares for Ayla like a daughter uh, very early in the story. And they do have a more complicated uh, relationship towards the middle and end of the book. Um, but he never, you know, he never kind of abandons his love for her as, as like a, as a father, essentially. Um, now Ayla is, again, she's very young. She does not understand the, um, clan in quite the same way. Some of their uh, customs and how they communicate are very alien to her and they, they put her off. Uh, the rituals that they undergo um, kind of scare her in several scenes. Um, but she very much wants to belong to this group. Uh, she is adopted by, again, Kreb and Kreb's sister, who is uh, the clan's medicine woman, a position that she harried for uh, that she inherited from uh, her mother, who is also the mother of Brun and Kreb, uh, the leader and the shaman, respectively. Or, respectively, excuse me. Um, and Isa, Isa has had a hard time having a child of her own, uh, and her, her mate it was not very uh, supportive. Um, so, you know, she also really cares for the girl, and she very much wants to make her, uh, you know, a medicine woman. And as she doesn't have children of her own, at least at the start of the book, um, this is some, this is one of those things that the clan as a whole kind of doesn't really want to have happen because, uh, she's an outsider that as a, Isa should have, uh, a woman from her line, a, a daughter take her place. Uh, and Kreb and Isa, you know, they, they also have their own brother-sister kind of relationship that is also a little weird in terms of um, other things. At some point, they kind of are um, almost married. It's not the same. It's not not necessarily a sexual thing. Uh, it's just that Iz's husband, I believe, dies or leaves her, and then Kreb has to kind of adopt his sister and this girl, uh, and they kind of share a, a home together or a sub cave together, um, a hearth. Technically they, they have their own, all the little family units have their own, um, uh, hearths and fires that they tend. Um, and this is where you get to some of the, I guess, some of the differences between um, Neanderthals and the Cro-Magnons. The Neanderthals are very much 
um, more instinctual than humans. They learn things through um, more ancestral instinctual memories rather than being taught. Um, Owl kind of has it that the Neanderthals really don't speak. Uh, There is dialogue in this book. There's quite a bit of it, actually. But you learn kind of through their conversations that they're not actually speaking the way that I am now or you are when you're talking to someone and they're not listening the way that you're listening to my voice right now. They use kind of uh, shorter single syllable grunts and things like that, but they also have a kind of an intricate sign language uh, that they are uh, using to communicate ideas and the like. Uh, And that is something that was, you know, very kind of popularized by a lot of studies uh, at the time that Owl was writing this book uh, and is still something that is being researched today. Um, now, recently, because of you know newer finds, there is evidence that Neanderthals at the very least had the bones capable of speech like Homo sapiens. Of course, whether or not they had the same kind of vocal cords is impossible to say because... Uh, you know, flesh deteriorated from anything that, you know, um, old a long time ago. So it it is very possible that, um, you know, Neanderthals did communicate more like us. Um, But the idea that the Neanderthals are communicating, uh, or at least think differently, and have different strengths to their cognitive process than humans are very much um, something that is still, you know, believed to have happened or believed to have been developed by the Neanderthals. Um, one of the key theories that humans uh, or that Homo sapiens were able to um, overcome the Neanderthals eventually was because of uh, their, uh, I guess, they're more complex uh, social structures or more organized social structures. Uh, social structures might be a better way to say it. They were able to communicate easier. And also, of course, the uh, Homo sapien ability to create more advanced technological weapons. Um, the Neanderthals are described as being shorter and squatter, but more powerfully built. Uh, which, again, is something that we do see in the archaeological record. Uh, Ayla is taller than, um, I believe, every member of the clan. She does not stoop the same way they do, which also causes problems for her with um, uh, Brood, uh, the son of Brun, the the clan leader. He's he's the antagonist of this story. Um. Not that he has much power. He's a very kind of pathetic uh, individual, at least in terms of um, characterization. He is not something that um, he he's more of a he he is very much the antagonist in terms of he he mainly is there just to kind of make Ayla feel bad about herself. Uh, he does. Uh, kind of participate in some violence and instigate violence of specific kinds against Ayla. I won't get into too much specifics uh, because um, I don't want this episode to be uh, 
removed from any services. I'm not sure uh, how in depth I can go to some details. Um, but that's kind of the height of his, he very much wants Ayla to feel small. He wants power over her because he feels like uh, she gets attention that she does not deserve. Uh, she is allowed to participate in certain activities that no other woman has uh, been allowed to participate in. Uh, she is very much um, kind of a, a foil to uh, broad, um, broad, excuse me. Um, he feels like that he should be the center of attention because he is the son of the chief's mate. Um, and that is another thing that they talk about. Um, there is some talk that uh, they don't understand that men mating with women uh, results in children, um, which is something I, I don't know if I necessarily buy that. Um, the clan is, you know, they understand that, you know, men and women li living together um, create children, but they're not sure, they're not aware that it's sexual activity. They believe it's um, it's a case of the of the woman's uh, totemic animal, the spirit that guides and protects them, um, is overcome by uh, another spirit. Now, whether the spirit is her mate or just uh, her her mate's totem animal, uh, they they kind of go back and forth on that in a couple of places in the story. Um, and Ayla's totem is the cave lion because she was wounded. This is a very powerful totem. It's something that no woman has ever had before as her kind of spiritual protector. Uh, and Kreb gave that to her because, A, she was attacked by one. He had to give her one, and he, he very much meditated on what her animal could be. And he also felt like, oh, she's ugly. No one's going to want to take her as their mate. So, um... You know, she, you know, she probably does have a strong spirit preventing uh, a male from bonding with her. Um, however, Ayla, uh, being a little bit more um, disconnected from the spiritual world of the Neanderthals, she begins to believe uh, that the act of uh, sex produces children. Uh, and she, she kind of comes up with this theory after her encounters with Broad and her meeting with another um, uh, woman. Uh, I forget her name. She shows up in like kind of a group uh, meeting of several of the clans in the region of Neanderthals. And this woman had encountered others, three other men who had uh, abused her. And she conceived a child uh, with these people, um, or with one of these men, and uh, that child was very similar to Ayla's own son, uh, Dirk. Um, and I, again, I'm not going to spoil too much, because I do think this is worth a read. It's not a very long book. It's only, um, it's only let's see, uh, double check my chapters here. It, well, it's a little bit longer than I thought. It's about 500 pages, uh, give or take a couple, depending on your um, your copy. But it's very it's very simple words. There's nothing that's very um, 
you know, philosophical. There's no, there's nothing that would, I think, hold you up. Um, and it's very much to the point. It's a very, I won't say action oriented because it is very kind of, um, more of a spiritual or a think piece, I'd say. Uh, there are some bits of action in it, but um, the words used are simple. They're they're easy, easily descriptive. Um, they're well, they're descriptive, um, and they're very easy to understand. It's telling a very straightforward sto- story. There are no long travel scenes. Um, there are scenes where Ayla is kind of on her own due to some interactions he has with the clan and the breaking of their rules. Um, but you, what you might believe would be a kind of a long, drawn-out couple of chapters, uh, Owl usually just kind of gets to the point. She just tells the events that are important. There's not a lot of um, um, scenery chewing, other than you know just saying what a character sees. Uh, if it's not directly involved with moving the plot along... Uh, she does not really dwell on it too much, which I appreciate. It kind of matches with her understanding of how Neanderthals view the world. Uh, yeah, so let's see. Where was I in my notes here? Ah, so um, another thing that Owl kind of touches on, and uh, I've mentioned this a little bit, but... Uh, but the Neanderthals do take part in a couple of ceremonies that involve um, psychotropics. Um, and that, that quote that I read at the start of this, this is, um, this is a part where Kreb and Ayla share kind of a, a psychotropic trip where Kreb is kind of able to almost telepathically, uh, well, he, not almost, he does telepathically connect to her like on a, like kind of an animal instinctual level. And Ayla can, because of Kreb's telepathic abilities, uh, she's kind of able to follow along with it to some extent. Uh, She doesn't quite understand what she's seeing. Uh, She just knows how it makes Kreb feel. She She can feel Kreb's pain or his... His understanding of the situation. She can see how that makes him feel. But she can't really see what he's seeing. Uh, she more sees the the effects of what he's seeing than the actual visions themselves. Uh, and that is kind of like one of the sadder parts of the book. Kreb understands you know, that the others are going to replace his people. Um... And again, like, yes, once the Cro-Magnons or the early uh, Europeans uh, or the early Homo sapien Europeans move in, the Neanderthals are are gone within a very brief period of time. Uh, Now, I will say that Owl actually predicted, uh, or did not predict, but she um, she actually went out on a limb on that. There was a very, you know, hotly... Or highly debated topic of whether humans and Neanderthals made it. Um, there had there had been a very sizable community in the archaeological field um, that said no, there's no way humans and Neanderthals had 
you know, procreated. Homo sapiens and Neanderthals probably would have thought each other were ugly and disgusting. Um, the Neanderthals were, while they were, you know, closer to humans than probably any other thing, they probably lived uh, in much more animalistic conditions than Homo sapiens. They probably would have found them more animal than human. Um, and that's something that did not change until fairly recently. I, th I heard a couple of uh, lectures in the early 2000s where that was still uh, being held out by a number of people. Uh, but, of course, DNA evidence uh, recently has shown that it did indeed happen. Uh, now, it's again, it's not a large amount, uh, but there is definitely Neanderthal DNA in uh, humans. Uh, so that is something Owl got right. Uh, and to go back to the point about psychotropics, um, this also predates the... Um, the uh, stone ape theory, um, or at least, I guess, the, um, I guess the formal theory of the stone ape theory. This has always kind of been something that was debated, especially in the 60s and 70s, um, you know, that, you know, humans had maybe been experimenting with wild mushrooms, and that this had kind of given uh, people you know, more, um, more imaginative abilities, I guess. It's something that did that sparked human imagination and maybe even had, uh, helped the development of human religion, or at least the, uh, laid the groundwork for humans to develop a religion. Um, now again, this idea had been kind of floated for a number of years in the sixties and seventies, but I believe it was like formally, proposed, I believe, in 1992, I want to say. Um, I could be wrong about that. I may have been getting uh, some stuff um, kind of backwards. But uh, I know Terrence McKenna, uh, his book, Food of the Gods, was a very big part of that um, theory. Um and he, you know, his claim was that it helped uh, the transition from Homo erectus to Homo sapiens, um, which again, it, uh, I think that's kind of a wild under misunderstanding of how foods affect us. Um, it's not going to cause us to evolve differently. It may, again, it may inspire uh, or terrify, depending on your trip, uh, individuals, and that those individuals can kind of spread that knowledge. Um, but it's not going to affect the course of human evolution. Um, but yeah, so, uh, Owl, again, she got some things right. Uh, she got some things, uh, wrong, but she was working with very popular, wildly accepted theories at the time. So I think she deserves a lot of credit for this. Uh, and um, apparently, while I was researching this, I learned that there is a movie version of this, <laughs> uh, of this book. Uh, Daryl Hannah plays the uh, older Ayla. Um, but yeah, so I highly encourage you to read this book. Um, it, it's a very good one. Um, the sequel is The Valley of Horses. 
where it kind of uh, follows on uh, from this, the end of this book. Um, and Ayla uh, becomes the primary character going forward. Um, she she becomes the complete focus of the book. Um, because I know I said I wasn't going to spoil it, but spoiler alert, uh, Kreb is, uh, dies. Of course, we found the skeleton in Shanadar, at least the, <laughs> the, the, uh, the real person that Kreb was based on. Uh, he was laid to rest in a cairn in a cave. Uh, and that that fate does befall um, uh, Kreb, unfortunately. Though uh, he he does end on a hopeful uh, note, um, at least in the grand scheme of things, his understanding of the world, um, kind of, uh, despite his fears and misgivings and his knowing uh, that you know the clan as a larger group as a whole may be numbered. He does hold out hope that there are parts of the clan that will live on forever. And that is definitely something I think uh, that is conveyed quite well and quite beautifully, really. Um, Owl does a great job, despite, again, her prose being simplistic, uh, which, again, I believe is a stylistic choice. I don't think it's because she's a bad writer. She's a very good writer. I think um, the simplicity of the text helps it deliver a very a very um a very well yeah despite the text being simplistic it does deliver a very eloquent and powerful message uh overall and i i do have the other books i got them all at the same time i just never picked up um valley of horses uh because i why did I stop reading? I actually started Value Horse. I think I read the first chapter and I stopped. Uh, I believe it was because I was reading, also reading a book on, yeah, it was William. I remember I had finished, um, I had finished uh, Clan of the Cave Bear, started Valley of the Horses, but then I remembered I had bought a copy of William L. Schreer's The Fall of the Third Republic. And I loved his uh, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Uh, book, which of course talks about Nazi Germany, uh, but uh, the fall of the Third Republic talks about France's perspective from the uh, run up to and very uh, uh, end of the uh, Nazi invasion of France in um, these kind of the early days of World War II. Uh, so I I got sidetracked with that and I just never got back to it. Uh, but I do have. Um, Valley of the Horses packed up in my bag, ready for my trip this weekend. So um, I will probably do an episode on that. Um, I know we've kind of gone back in time. Uh, I try to, you know, keep things focused on the period we're talking about. But um, yeah, I think uh, I think this was a good episode um, or a good time to talk about this um, going forward uh, because much like uh, the period in the book, we are in a transitional period. Um, a, uh, instead of a transition from uh, Neanderthals being a dominant species to Homo sapiens, we're uh, transitioning from, or beginning to see the transitions uh, from the roving hunter-gatherer bands to more organized sedentary groups. Um, although, again, this is a 
work in progress and the mobile bands are still uh, vastly outnumbered the outnumbering the uh, sedentary groups but yeah so um, I hope you all have enjoyed uh, I will be this episode will be out in the normal time um, if you have any questions or feedback please feel free to comment on any of my YouTube videos uh, or you can reach me at waradrevpod at gmail.com you can direct message me on Twitter um, however you'd like to get in touch please do um, and wherever you're listening to me uh, please like subscribe download whatever you do on that particular service um, help get the show trending uh, this has been a very big year and it still is but I would like to see it grow a little bit more um, but yeah if you're in the US I hope you have a good 4th of July tomorrow uh, and have had a good weekend if you are international uh, I hope you have had a good normal regular week uh, but yeah thank you all for listening and joining me I hope you've enjoyed and I hope to see you here next time thank you all goodbye